Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. The worship of God is the most important thing you and I do as believers. It's more important than evangelism. It's more important than Bible study. It's more important than coming to church. It's more important than giving money. The most important thing we do, out of which flows all of those other things, is worship. To worship God, to come before Him, to engage Him, and to be engaged by Him is an act that is so critical to us as believers that we must learn how to do it properly. We must never approach God casually. I want my children and my grandchildren to learn that, that their growth, their spiritual development, all that they will ever become as Christians will be rooted in whether or not they properly know how to worship God. Now, there are certain emails and letters that I've gotten, all of which were really good and positive this past week with folks raising questions about some of the things that were taught. And I need to clarify a couple of things because I want you to have no misconceptions. This sermon series, this little mini-series within the big series, the big series being the Legacy Principles, is the series on worship. I've entitled it Seven Preparatory Steps for Worship. Now that by no means means that there are only seven steps, nor are these steps necessarily the right ones for you. But I will say this, as we define worship, worship being core elements that are present that make for the body to come together, those core elements being the preaching of the word, which is central, the worship of God expressed in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, confession of our sins, the reception of the sacraments, the need for us to develop a, an understanding of our sense of mission and calling, those core elements, including the celebration of the sacraments, are the elements that make for a worship structure that is biblical. Now, our styles will differ. The style in the Ivory Coast was certainly different than here. And that is a matter of style. The core elements that I've just mentioned are what make worship, worship. Now, what I've done with these seven preparatory steps is I've looked at those core principles and asked myself, what can I do to teach my people how to address those core elements before they come to the worship service? What steps can I help them develop before they walk into the sanctuary to address those basic core elements. And I've come up with these seven. Now, there are certainly more. There are certainly better ones. 
This is, I hope for you, a starting point, a beginning point, somewhere to say, you know what? I'm no longer going to take worship casually. I'm no longer going to wake up on Sunday morning and say, well, I think it's time to go to church without having given it any forethought, without giving it any consideration, with no preparation, with no uh, soul searching. I believe it's time for us to come here prepared, prepared to meet the living God. I also believe it's time for us to walk out of here different than when we came in. Otherwise, how could we possibly meet and engage a holy God, meet him as we're supposed to meet him in worship, and walk out of the service no different than when we came in? How is that even possible for us to do? Yet it is something that we do all the time because we do not prepare. Now, over the past couple of weeks, I've given you several of these steps and quickly, and I hope quickly for review, I want to just raise your specter again. Hopefully you'll be able to see exactly what I'm trying to accomplish. The first thing I asked you to do is to seek to resolve all known conflicts with anyone to the degree that it depends upon you. Now, it's important that we actually call the person, actually take steps if necessary to to reach out to that person and ask them whether or not there's any way these issues can be resolved. When you look and meditate upon passages like Matthew 5, 21 through 26, Hebrews 12, 14, Romans 14, 9, and passages like that, you will see that conflict resolution, having a clear conscience before men, is critical to the worship of God. Sometimes it's not possible to resolve a conflict. Sometimes you go to somebody and you ask uh, them to resolve issues with you and they're just not willing. You try and you try and you try again. And the one thing that I believe a lot of us do after we have made every effort to get the issues resolved, we basically throw our hands up in disgust and say, that's it. I give up. I can't do that anymore. And that is the very mindset that limits the power of God. Why not instead say, Lord, there's nothing I can do, but please create the opportunity. Open the doors. You do what I can't do so that all in my power is given to resolving this issue. One dear lady shared a wonderful story with me, and I don't think she would mind me sharing it with you. She said, when you said that a couple of weeks ago, that we can't just throw our hands up in disgust and say, I quit, that's it. The mindset or the attitude that is so antithetical to what we're trying to accomplish. She said, I have a conflict with someone, someone very near and someone very dear to me. And for years, we've not been able to resolve it. We've broken off relationships. We don't have a relationship, haven't had one for, for years. When you preach that, I prayed I prayed that God would change my heart and give me the opportunity to resolve a three-year-old conflict. And she said, and she was crying when she said this to me. She said, this past week, you'll never believe what happened. I said, well, try me. She said, I got a knock at my door. And she said, the very person I was praying about that I hadn't seen in three years 
with these unresolved issues knocked on my door and came into my home. We have now set up a time where we're going to get together and try to get these issues resolved. You see, she tried everything she could, but God was still in the business of working because her mindset had changed. Her attitude had changed. She didn't throw her hands up and say, I quit. I had a man just this past week called me on the telephone. I probably would recognize him from 25 years ago. 25 years ago, I did not know that I had a conflict with this man. I had no clue. And I call, he called me and I called him back, asked him what I could do for him. I thought it was going to be something ministerial, pastoral or something like that. He does not attend this church. I hadn't seen this person in 25 years. He said, the Lord has laid it on my heart, convicted me that I need to seek your forgiveness for the anger that I've held against you now for all these years. Right out of the clear blue, he said, the Lord impressed it on my heart that I needed to do that. I needed to make things right. Will you forgive me? And I said, of course I forgive you. And I just thank you that you have been obedient to the voice of God in your life. These are the amazing things that can happen when you submit yourself to the sovereignty of God who does what you cannot do. We do everything within our power, but then the Spirit of God does everything within His power, which far is far greater than what's in our power. Amen? So resolve all known conflicts to the best of your ability. But if you can't resolve them, you need to keep the open mind and the open hands and say, now, Lord, you open the doors and make me sensitive to what you're trying to do in my life. Secondly, I talked about preparing an offering to make out a check for 10% of your income. Now, let me tell you something about what kind of interest this generates. I've been talking to you about the need for us to make a personal sacrifice. We need to determine if the tithe represents a personal sacrifice. For some of you, it does. For many of you, that's exactly what it is. I was so encouraged. Last week, I attended one of the house churches that is attended mainly by what I like to call the 20-somethings. Young people, they were talking about this message and instead of trying to debate why they shouldn't tithe, they were asking each other and challenging each other with stories about how they're going to make the principle work for them, how they're going to apply the principle, and they're looking for ways to own the vision of being obedient to the giving of the tithes and the offerings. And they had tremendous insight for young people, tremendous blessings we receive, my wife and I, from just hearing those wonderful struggles that they're having. Issues come up. We, one of the issues is in the third point here. We need to ask God to give us wisdom how we're spending what remains. What are we doing with the rest? You see, what happens here is some of us actually spend and make decisions on spending and buy houses we cannot afford buy cars we cannot afford, buy furniture we cannot afford, go on vacations we cannot afford. All of these things are well and good in and of themselves, but if they are strapping you so much financially that you cannot use the resources God gave you to build the kingdom of God, then those things are wrong. And many people have found themselves boxed into a corner 
And I know some of you will disagree with this, and maybe you're right. You probably could be right. I'm just going to give you my personal opinion. I have no scriptural basis for saying this. I believe that if you are so strapped financially that you have absolutely no way in, your, in human reasoning to tithe, that you ought to test God the way he challenges you to in Malachi 3. And here's what he says, prove me. Lay it on the line and prove me. So why not prove him? Why not this week start with 1% of your income? And then next week go to 2%. And the following week go to 3%. And then just keep going. I know of a preacher who when he first started tithing almost 50 years ago, someone well known in the world, this preacher committed himself to increasing the percentage every week in order to test the principle. Do you know what he now gives back to the Lord? 90% of his income goes back to the Lord. The reason he's able to do that is because God has so blessed the remaining 10% and blessed his faithfulness that he is now able to stand and give ample testimony of the grace of God in this respect. Now, for some of you, that's not going to be an easy thing to do, but you need a plan. You just can't stand back and say, well, I can't do it. I'll bet if you look at the other 90% that you're spending, you'll figure out a way to do it. In most cases, we do not handle proper stewardship over the 90% that's left behind. That's why I say, well, maybe you need to tear up the first check and write a new one because now it becomes an act of faith. We want to meditate on passages like Malachi 3 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, learning such things as the tithe is the starting core principle of giving, realizing that here in our own congregation, there is a ministry that has been extended through a, a legacy of giving by other people who made it possible for you to be here. You now need to make it possible for others years from now to be able to enjoy the blessings of your giving. We need to learn to give according to our potential and to realize that that kind of potential giving is a privilege. It is not an obligation. It is a privilege to give to the work of the Lord. Giving needs to flow out of a heart consecration. It must flow out of my heart first. I must give my heart to Christ. I've always believed for years that if you teach people to fall in love with Christ, and they truly fall in love with Christ, the tithe will follow. Because people realize in, in terms of their own salvation, the consecration they have to Christ, Christ is our model. He's the model of self-sacrifice. He's the one that has given himself for us completely, wholly, 100%. And as he gave himself, what we give back to him is a heart full of consecration. Now we cannot give equal gifts. We can't do that. We're not a socialist country. We're not a communist country. You and I live in a capitalistic system where income levels vary. God is not calling us to give equal gifts, but he is calling us to equally sacrifice. We do this not because of law. We do this because of grace. Grace giving extends even beyond the tithe. We see that God extended his grace and mercy to us. And so out of love for him, we extend grace and mercy in the way in which we handle our funds. That's a part of worship. We do offerings in the context of worship. 
You are making an offering to God of something that is the least of your existence. The least of your existence, the lowest part of your existence is your money. The lowest part of what you are, who you are, is your money. There is a sense in which we are to understand that as we give back to God, it is the lowest part of our existence. There are so many more critical and important things. And if we can't get started there, how are we going to be able to address the other issues of good stewardship and kingdom building and evangelism and outreach and discipleship, etc.? The third thing I told you is to confess all of the personal and secret sins to God. Ask him to guide you in corporate worship. Ask him to be very specific. Speak to your heart in such a way that you will understand what the sins of the tongue are. The sins of the tongue are the easiest ones to commit, aren't they? There are some people who are compulsive liars, and they don't even know it. You lie by exaggerating the truth. You lie by saying things about yourself in order to impress people that aren't true. Some lies are just overt falsehoods because you're afraid of handling the real truth. We lie when we defame another person's character. We lie when we make promises that we do not fulfill. And on and on the list goes. You read it this morning. You shall not bear a false witness against your neighbor. As far as I know, God has not rescinded that commandment. That is just as binding as thou shalt not commit adultery, or thou shalt not kill, or thou shalt not steal. You know, when you bear false witness, you steal another person's character. Why do we do these things? List the sins of the tongue. Say, Lord, now I'm struggling with this. Help me to understand how to be truthful and honest and not looking always to impress people with how important I am. Look at the sins of the mind that you struggle with. The thought life Paul talks about bringing every thought into the captivity of Christ. Look at the sins you have actively committed. And implied in that is that there are passive sins as well. There are sins that we commit we do not even know are sins. The question is, if I don't know it's a sin, is it still a sin? The answer is absolutely yes. When you sin a sin you do not even know is a sin, you're still sinning. So say, Lord, now open my mind and, and show me not only the things that, I, that are obvious that I've done, but Lord, show me the things that are not so obvious. Show me what my implied sins look like. Then and only then, friends, can we meditate upon the promises that God gave us concerning forgiveness in passages like 1 John 1, 9, to agree with God. Now, you need to do that before you come here. You need to do that before you walk in the doors. Fourthly, I said you need to pray for those who will lead you in worship. Pray for the ones who minister to your kids. This is legacy. Pray for God's power to come down on the worship leaders. It's not easy to do what we do up here. It's not easy at all. It's hard. It takes a lot of work, a lot of planning. It doesn't just happen. There's a lot of things behind the scenes that take place before we even walk in here. And it's very easy to sit where you're sitting and critique. It's very easy to hold up scorecards. 8.7, 9.3. Oh, that was a 10. No, that was a 4. 
It's very easy to sit there and grade the so-called performance of the people up here. Wouldn't it be wonderful if instead you were praying a 10 down on every single person who ministers here and begging God to minister to them so that he can minister through them. Pray for the abilities of those who sing great songs. Do you know how hard that was for that song to be sung? How difficult, how draining, how much it takes out of a person to minister to you in such a way that you are catapulted into God's presence that if somebody cut your suspenders, you would fly up into heaven. You see, that's what this is all about. We are here to enable you in the context of worship. Pray for me. Pray for the pastor. Pray that God's power and his word would impact you in ways that I didn't anticipate. You always hear me talk about urging Christ. I want you to hear only what God wants you to hear. I don't want you to hear any of my opinions because I know they're flawed. I don't want you to hear any of my great ideas because they're not so great. I want you to hear the spirit of God speaking to you through the scriptures. Did you pray that that would happen today? It happens so much. People will say to me, you said da, 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 da. And I didn't say it. Or I don't remember saying it, but the Spirit of God knew that that's what they needed to hear at that moment. That's what preaching is all about. That's why it's a core and central element of what we do. Meditate on passages concerning our leaders. Hebrews 13, 7, 1 Thessalonians 2, 5 through 9. I need to meditate as well as you on Ezekiel 34 concerning false leadership. Well, let me give you the fifth principle. Pray for the specific applications of worship. The specific applications of worship that are of significance to you personally. You know what I mean by that? There's a Greek word that we throw around here. It's the Greek word for household in the scriptures. It's the Greek word oikos. The Greek word oikos means not just your immediate family, Not just your extended family, but your household. Now, what the scripture means by household here is your entire circle of influence. God placed you in a very specific mission field. Specific and unique to you. He didn't place me in that mission field. He placed you in that mission field. He gave you the family that he wanted you to have. He gave you the context of work relationships that he wants you to have. He put you in that classroom. And those people, believe it or not, are hungrier than they care to admit. They want to know more than they will admit. What are we afraid of? Why haven't you invited somebody to come with you today? Why is there no one sitting next to you that you personally prayed through, worked on, prayed through, prayed for, sitting next to you today? Why is there rarely anyone sitting next to you that you personally have invited? What are you afraid of? What is stopping you? You'd be surprised how often I get this kind of a phone call. Here's how it goes. Pastor Betters, yes. I am coming to church Sunday and I'm bringing my mother and my father. Now, please, Pastor Betters, make sure 
you say or make sure you don't say and they're concerned. They're worried. They're worried that somehow or another we might do something up here to offend them. You see, they are, they think we're a cult. They think we're a bunch of holy rollers. They came to church one time and some woman dared to raise her hand in worship. Bunch of holy rollers. And they have these images of us that are not true. And you sit there afraid that somehow or another the gospel is going to be offensive. You know, one of the great things about messages, sermons, etc., sermons like this are meant for Christians. How to worship God is meant for Christians. You see, non-Christians can't worship God. Their worship's meaningless. A non-Christian has to come to faith in Jesus Christ before he or she can worship God. You, on the other hand, are believers. You're here to worship God. Now, what are you afraid of? Well, they're not a Christian. They may not understand. There's a little scientific term that's used. I like to use. It's called osmosis. You know what osmosis is? It's God penetrating the spiritual barriers by them simply observing God's people at work. God's people at worship. They need to see you in the context of your faith and what you truly believe. Additionally, that holds you accountable when you walk out of here for whether or not you're going to live up to what you say you believe. You're here in the context, praising God, worshiping him, citing the creed, singing the songs with excitement and, and clapping when God blesses you in a certain way, sitting there and the preacher says something that really hits you, you say amen, and on and on it goes and that person's watching you. The problem is they're also watching you when you're doing some things during the week that you should not be doing. So it holds you accountable. And you'd be surprised at how hungry these people really are. They're not as closed-minded as you think they are. There's a void. There's an emptiness that non-believers have. They're struggling for something. We are living in the most religious society in human history. All kinds of religions are vying for the souls of men. Some of them are godless religions. But they are vying for the souls of men. The person in your circle of influence that you most likely think will reject you is more than likely the person most open to the gospel. But you're afraid. You're afraid. Oh, something here might be offensive. Something that's said they may not agree with. I hear that all the time. I brought so-and-so and... Boy, when you said something about this, last week I heard somebody heard you mention Democrats and their heads perked up. Like I think Democrats are, are heathens and Republicans are believers. Nothing could be further from the truth. What makes a person truly politically correct is when they are serving in their office to the glory of God. And that's very rare, very rare. So where are those people? Why aren't they sitting here beside you? Why have you not invited them? We need to then follow that up by praying for and planning to invite these people into your circle of influence. Bring them into the context of your life. Why not have them over for dinner? Why not have them 
sit down with you and listen to the Da Vinci CD or some resource that we have so that you can discuss it. Why not open your home? Let them see how you live. Let them come to your table and watch you say grace. When more than likely, when they come to their tables, they dig in like the dogs do. Well, why not show them how you live? And then you need to list at least three ways. You ought to be different when you leave here. Lord, this is what's wrong in my life. Now, by the way, you're doing this before you walk in here. You're doing this before you walk in here. Lord, here are the areas of my life we need to work on. I plan to meet you this morning. I plan to have you speak to my heart this morning. I plan to hear through a song or through a hymn or through a prayer or through through the sermon or through this or through that. I plan to hear you address these specific needs in my life, these specific areas that I need to work on. Write them down. Be specific. Meditate on James 1, 21 through 27. Listen to this passage. Listen to what James says. I think you'll catch the flavor of where I'm going with this. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth. All moral filth. And the evil that is so prevalent. You see, James thought it was prevalent in his day. He should live in this day. Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word that's been planted in you. Listen, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Now that's James. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror. Now we do that every morning when we get up, don't we? Every morning when we get up, we look into the mirror. We see what we look like. Then we see what paint we have to put on to make it look better, et cetera, et cetera. Do not, he says, you, you're like that man who looks at his face in the mirror. After looking at himself, he goes away and immediately forgets what he looked like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does You see a word being repeated there? Does, do, do, does. Action versus inaction. If anyone considers himself religious and does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Of all the sins James could have picked out to give an example, he picks out the sin of the tongue. He says, if you can't bridle the tongue, your religion's worthless. If what you say to God in the context of worship is not backed up by what you say in the context of being outside the church, then your religion's worthless. What good are you? What good are we? And then he says this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now, please do not misunderstand what James is doing here. He's not telling you you've got it all together if you take care of widows and orphans. He's using that as an example. What he's saying to us is, 
There's the widow. Here's the orphan. You see them in their misery. You see their brokenness. You see what they're experiencing. You see their pain. And you just walk away. What good's your religion? It's worthless. In other words, to see what needs to be done, to know what needs to be done, to know how you are to express your faith, and then to walk away from it is religion that's worthless. That's what he's saying. In other words, the emphasis here is putting feet to your theology. What you say you believe needs to have feet. It needs to walk. It needs to do. We need to have action. But you need to be praying for that before you come in here. You need to be asking God to make that clear to you before you walk through the door. The sixth point is this. Read the text of the sermon for that day. It's most likely to be closely associated with the previous week. Now that is an application that fits here. For example, when I preached through the 27 precious promises, you knew each week what the promises were going to be. You know I'm working through the Psalms. You know right now I'm working through Psalm 95. Did you even bother to meditate on Psalm 95 today? Did you prepare your heart for what you're going to hear? You know, see, what you should be doing with Psalm 95 is you should be preparing a sermon. You should be sitting there doing the work that I do in a different way in preparing to find out everything you possibly can find out about Psalm 95. Research it, study it, do what you can to understand the full context of the psalm so that when you come here and you listen, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I got that. I remember that. Yeah, I read that. Yeah, I understand that. I'm getting that point. Or how did I miss that? How did I just jump right over that and miss that? And you're engaging me. We're having fun together, engaging and sitting around the word. I'm ministering the word to you. You're ministering the word to me. We're studying together. We're considering these things together. You need to prepare for that. There are ways in which you could do that. Now, it's not always possible every single week. You may not know what the text is for that week, but meditate on the text from last week. Because you'll notice in my sermon deliveries, I always review. I'm always going back. Sometimes the reviews are longer than the new material. That's just my preaching style. Well, you know that style. You're able to benefit from that style. Whether you're in this church or some other church, learn the style of the preacher so that you can maximize the time that you're spending. I wouldn't want to sit there for an hour unprepared. You're giving me that time. I'm sitting here ministering the word. I would think you would be prepared. Some of you, you know, it's amazing from this angle. And I, I say it's funny because it really is funny. Without even looking at my watch, I know what time it is by some of you. You know why? Every single week it's the same thing. This happens. I see it every single week. Somehow or another, you think that if you're hiding behind somebody's big head, I can't see you. Remember, I'm up here. I'm standing up here. It's kind of funny to see how you're wasting your time. What a waste of time that is. Why would you do that? Why would you come here that tired? What did you do the day before? Did you properly prepare to hear the word? I think you need to revisit notes. 
Notes were critical to me in the early years of my ministry. I would write down everything everybody ever told me, right in the margins of my Bible. My Bibles were loaded with notes. I even got one of those big loose leaf Bibles that had note pages in it so that I could take sermon notes and notes that I got on tape or something I heard on the radio or something that I learned. Why? Because what I learned, I wanted to teach. The best way to learn something is to teach it. How are you going to teach something that you've forgotten? Make a record of it. Visit the notes. See what God is telling you. The next time I come around and preach on Psalm 95, you'll have a bunch of notes sitting there, insights that you will have gained. Make it a mission. Memorize. 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 You see, garbage goes in and garbage will come out. But if the word of God is engrafted in you, that is the only way the only way in which you're going to be able to stand against all moral filth. You know when you're tempted? You don't always have a Bible to whip out. It's not always there. But that Bible should be here. And when you're sitting there facing moral temptation, you can say to yourself in an act of worship, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have of God, and you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Or when you're wondering about your worldview and you're contrasting it with others around you who have a different worldview, you can say, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth, for you are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. You see, you're loading up for the attacks of the enemy. You have something to shoot. But if there's nothing in there, you have nothing to shoot. Remember the armor? The illustration of the armor? All that body armor, got this guy loaded up. He's got a helmet on, he's got his feet covered, he's got his shield, he's got big long shield, he's got his breastplate, take, takes care of the groin, everything else, he's all covered. So he's standing there, he's fully covered. What's missing? He has no weapon until God says to him, and take upon yourself the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You don't have a weapon, even though you think you're all armored. So bring it on, Satan. But I have no weapon. Here's where you put the weapon. Right here. You can't always whip out your King James Version. You can't always whip out your big family Bible. This book needs to be in your mind. You need to be meditating, refreshing yourself weekly with all the verses that you're memorizing, keeping fresh and current. And then finally... And here's the so what. Given what you've learned from the worship service today, journal a strategy for change in your home and in your life in one specific area. Now, earlier I told you, come in with how many? Three specific areas. I want you to leave majoring on one. 
I want you to walk out of here and say, this is what God told me I need to work on. Now, you've come in prepared with three. You're going to walk out with one, and you're going to journal it. Journaling's important. I come down in the morning, and I watch my wife. She's sitting there in her favorite chair. She has her cup of coffee in, your, in her hands, and there's a sanctuary around her. It's like holy ground. I try not to bother her because I know what she's doing. She's listening to the voice of God. She's reading the scriptures. And she's recording. She's writing down the specific ways in which God has spoken to her. She may not need it for that day, but she's going to need it someday. And she's going to be able to go back and see how the Spirit of God was speaking to her. So you may want to say something like this. Today in worship, the Lord spoke to my heart during the sermon or singing or prayer, you fill in the blank, about and be specific. The change that God is calling you to make. Therefore, in the coming week, I plan to, and you fill in the blank. You know why I want you to do that? Because before you come in here next week, that's what you're going to review. You're going to go back and say, this was what God told me Sunday. Did I even listen to him? Did the opportunities come about? Did I fall flat on my face just like I do every time I go on a diet? Did I miss it? Not so that you can come in here and feel guilty. That may be one of the three things you're going to put down on your list for the following week. Lord, help me to follow up with what you tell me to do. It may mean that you're going to have to establish some accountability. Share it with someone and say, this is what God said to me this week. This is what I need to do. Please hold me accountable to do it. And then you see this steady progression of Christian maturity taking place. Now, there are other ways. These aren't the only ways. There are other ways. But these are the ways I believe will be very helpful, very practical to you. One final thought. And this is critical. You should do this every day. Not just for Sunday. This is how all of your life should be measured. Why? Because every day for you, every sunrise, the scripture says, is a new covenant. A new promise that God has made to you. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You get a new day on Monday to worship God, a new day on Tuesday to worship God, and Wednesday and Thursday and every day of the week becomes a day of worship. What distinguishes this day is that we're doing it together. But every day, every day, this needs to become second nature to you. This needs to become who you are. And I pray that it's been helpful to you. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust Him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.